You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week September 5 to September 9. Uh, big week this week. We got to interview Julian Clary uh, with about his new show, The Joy of Mincing. And also we had a lovely discussion about the different perks of certain jobs. And then we had a discussion about television or other things that we've watched this week. Sex in the City. <laughs> Don't spoil it, mate. And we talked to John Elder Roberson about his book Switched On, which is about autism and a new um, research project that's happening about that. What a week. British comedian Julian Clary, someone very familiar to Australian audiences. His show, The Joy of Mincing, is playing on Wednesday night at Her Majesty's Theatre, but right now he's joining us live in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Hello, isn't it? Nice and relaxed in here. Often <laughs> you do these radio shows and they're all busy being frantic and <laughs> clapping all over the place. <laughs> Very chilled in here. Is it? Oh, that's good. I think that's just another synonym for unprofessional. I was, I was just thinking that, but... Um, I said before you're very familiar to Australian audiences. I was just trying to think, when was the last time that you were here? How long has it been since your last visit? Well, I was in a place called Adelaide in February. Because oh, okay. I was their cultural ambassador, I'll have you know. But I haven't... <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh, yes. But I haven't been... I haven't done a proper tour of Australia for about three years, I think. But this is like my ninth or tenth time over, so we we quite like each other, me and Australia. Yes, we do. (laughs) You like vulgarity, don't you? (laughs) Sure do. There are things I might get into trouble with in the mother country. I can come over here and talk about it on breakfast radio. (laughs) Well, I think we're going to ask you about some of those things. But what can people expect from this show? I mean, you're famous for your interactions with the audience. I'm kind of curious as what the uh, secret is to making that work. Um, well, I've always liked messing around with the audience because I think they're more interesting than anything that would be scripted. In this show, The Joy of Mincing, it's about what it says on the tin. It's about mincing, which this is my 30th um, anniversary tour. So I've always had mincing's always been a feature of my shows. And, and mincing and what it is, it's, of course, um, well, it's a funny way of walking, but it's also a declaration of joy in oneself in the face of adversity. And in this show, the... The, the what I do with the audience is I hand out MBEs, mincers of the British Empire, and <laughs> I, I select people who may, may be worthy in the audience, and they go home with a really. I should have brought you one actually, really lovely uh, proper MBE thing oh, that I've wow. had made. What makes someone worthy of a of an MBE? Then? Um, well, I have to investigate them. Uh, it's it's, <laughs> it's basically I select I select them. It's a sort of psychic thing, right. and then I, then I find out why they're worthy. They've always done something nice or kind. Or... Is that so? You just kind of look out in the audience and go, "Hello, oh, there's something about the way that you look." Yes, you have to have eye contact with people, and, right? Because then, because one in five of the general public are mad, and you don't want them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, we know. Yeah. Um, so you don't want mad people. You don't, you don't want drunk people, and just people who are fun who've got a bit of a story to tell. And inevitably, they have to go off and get changed into some of my most iconic outfits from the early 90s. <gasps> awesome. Um, in order to receive their MBEs. And then they kneel down in front of me and so it goes on. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about those costumes, when Sticky Moments was first shown here, I feel like a lot of the straight viewers probably had almost no idea about queer culture at all, whereas today it seems much more mainstream in a way. Has it changed the kind of jokes that you can do and the kind of way people respond? Well, it's just, it's yes, there's less of a kind of gasp of um, 
people were quite titillated. There's, there's things you can do with comedy that you can't do any other way in terms of demystif- demystifying gay culture. But um, now everyone's kind of in on the joke and it's it's about uh, entertaining people and, and make... I like to have a theatre full of people laughing, proper belly laughs, um, as, as opposed to how, what, how it was. You know, things, things have certainly evolved a bit. I was a... A big fan of sticky moments, and I, but I watched it when I was quite young. I guess I was like ten, eleven, and twelve, and it was, I think it was my first taste of an alternative comedy, and that was something that really drew me to it. And it was just fun and silly, and I really liked it for that reason. But so I just want to ask you about your what happened before you got to that stage. Did you start in? you know, just you're not a, a straight stand-up comic kind of thing. So what kind of things were you doing to get to that stage? Well, I was, I was at university and I started doing a double act with a girl uh, called Linda called Glad and May and we were two kind of... It was a bit Dame Edna-ish, actually. We mm. were kind of um, char ladies. Do you know what that means? Clean, no. clean Two cleaning ladies. Okay. Um, and the alternative cabaret circuit in London was in these very sort of embryonic stages and it was it was where eccentric people who didn't fit anywhere else would somehow end up in these rooms above pubs. You kind of thought, oh, at last I've found an audience of people that were kind of going to understand. And it was a, and it was a very left-wing environment. Mm. Um, no one was thinking it was ever last very long or become more mainstream or uh, be a stepping stone to television. No one was thinking like that. It was just sort of a way of expressing yourself, rather like your blouse with sausage dogs on. That's pretty great, isn't it? I'm admiring, yes. yes. Thank you. And you're wearing floral. Uh, we, we like to dress up. It's a nice touch. <laughs> um, hey, you've always kind of famously riled the establishment and there was a point in time where you they really wanted to get rid of you. Can you remember what that was like to be felt, to, to feel like that? The... That you could be offending someone so much with your humour that they wanted to get you out of sight, out of mind? Yes, it wasn't particularly pleasant being infamous. And uh, I said something on live television that caused a scandal. People, you did? Such a long time ago, people won't really remember. You can, Are we allowed to say radio, what it is? You can, you can totally tell, oh, the story. Yeah, tell the story. Go for it. I talked about fisting the Chancellor of the Exchequer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny at the time. Actually, funny. I came over when it's I was, funny now. <laughs> when I was in disgrace. I came straight to Australia and uh, was embraced here. So that's part of why I have such an affection for Australia. Um, it was, but I, I kind of knew that it was, you know, it was the era of Thatcher and everything, and I kind of knew that I was right in what I was doing, and that there is a certain certain benefits to shocking people and it was only the kind of right-wing press and people that that were going for me other people like taxi drivers who are a, a great judge of public opinion <laughs> <laughs> thought it was a very and it was quite a funny joke it was it was you know we had it was the punchline was talk about a red box which is um you wouldn't understand <laughs> red box is um what the chance of the exchequer carries around all oh, right okay but it has it's double double entendre for you right. <laughs> which, uh, i've deconstructed <laughs> Thank you. Um, yesterday we were talking to Candy Bow from the uh, queer theatre group Sisters Grim, and we mentioned that we were talking to you today. And she told us about being at a at a Catholic school and doing a project about homosexuality. It was based on you, and it was. The and she coloured in the words <laughs> homosexuality in different. Yeah, the project was called homosexuality, oh, yes. and it was all based uh, on you. And but she talked about it as being this kind of formative 
moment, well, no, it's an important moment for, I guess, the first time that she'd sort of ever come across the idea that someone could be queer. Do you get that a lot as someone who's been sort of a trailblazer of, you know, queer comedy? Is that something that people say to you a lot, that, that you've had this influence on them? Um, yes, it was never really intentional. I wasn't thinking that. I was just kind of... Uh, enjoying myself and because the cabaret circuit was a very competitive place I thought oh if I wear black rubber and talk about graphic gay sex and bring my dog on stage <laughs> Fanny the Wonder Dog this will get me noticed and uh, funnily enough I went to a Catholic um, school run by Benedictine monks which was quite an oppressive environment and and uh, I think that that was kind of my inspiration so it's interesting that she was also yes uh, that all ties in <laughs> I blame the Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we blame them for well, everything. Yeah. <laughs> I, I too am a, a, a gay comedian and grew up in the Catholic Church as well. So there's, there's an awful <laughs> lot of it about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to have a sense of humour growing up like that. I think absolutely. Uh, just in passing, you did mention Fanny the Wonder Dog. Is is Fanny still with you? Well, if she was still with us, she'd be about thirty five <laughs> years old. So, no, no, she has passed over to the Great Behind. And I then got another dog called Valerie, who I was convinced was Fanny reincarnated, and uh, I, I, I. Is it another whippet? Another whippet. Looked the same, and I search the dog's names because I believe in reincarnation I was trying to find Fanny and I found Valerie and I thought this is this is the same dog and I took her home and we rehearsed and then I took her on stage one day and uh, and she has no talent because <laughs> Fanny would do these impersonations of the Pope and the Queen Mother and she really I mean she really did have a certain something but Valerie you know it was painful nothing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whippets are very anxious dogs. I've had whippets in my life. I'm surprised that you ever got any any whippet on stage. (laughs) Rehypnol. That's the secret. I jest, of course. Also, Nancy, you're also writing children's books these days, which is perhaps an unexpected um, career trajectory for us. Tell us about the bolds. I know none of us saw this coming. (laughs) Right? It it wasn't my idea, actually. It was my agent's idea. And... um, the Bolds, it's a, a series of books about a family of hyenas living in disguise, disguised as human beings in suburban London. <laughs> and it's a story I actually made up when I was a child. I, I grew up, um, I was quite a lonely child for reasons I won't bore you with, but I used to sit and watch the neighbours and I, we happened to have very hairy neighbours. <laughs> she had big frizzy hair and the husband had a hairy back and they also laughed a lot and they had this loud cackling laugh. And I used to watch them when I was about eight years old and I decided that they weren't human beings at all. They were animals living in disguise. So all I've done when I came to write these books was was regress to being an eight-year-old boy again and uh, out the stories come. Um, just on the reviews of this this tour, a lot of the critics are talking about you now almost as a national treasure, kind of iconic um, performer. How different was the environment when you first started performing? Did you ever imagine that you'd reach that level of kind of mainstream love and acceptance well no why are you all signalling at him because he's, he's tapping, tapping his hand he's oh he's don't ta- tap he's tapping his hand he's tapping his, his yeah. yeah people might think it's me yeah. <laughs> well that's why it was yeah. to save you not Jeff so thank you well, now, I never thought that I would do it for very long because it is let's face it a very silly and trivial act and I'm just really messing around with the audience so um, when I started in my 
when I left university, I thought, well, this will be fun for a couple of years, but eventually I'll have to get a proper job. But I find I've managed to string it out for 30 years. And it was very different. It was it was a very small little world and it was we were sort of battling against all manner of things and now yes it's changed it's much more much more pleasant really mm-hmm. the show is called the joy of mincing it's playing this wednesday night at her majesty's theater we've been talking to julian clary thanks so much for coming in thank you thank you I've been watching YouTube clips of Steve Irwin on various different chat shows um, because it's actually the anniversary. It's the it ten is. year ten year anniversary of his death that was on that was a couple of days ago. But also, I've just found out that his son um, Bob is it Bob? Yeah, it's Bob. yeah, Rob. They yeah. call him Bob for short. That's right. That's why I was confused. I don't remember. Robert. I know because I've just been reading. I've been reading about them a lot I'm, this week as no, well. No, I don't yeah. know anything. I'm curious to hear where this is going. Well, Robert has just um, is uh, is won the Australian Geographic Nature Photographer of the Year Junior Award. Oh. Yeah, but it actually it says that he won. But then you read further and you find out he got runner up. Oh, um, so he didn't win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so. But anyway, but he's, but he took a photo of um, a, a crocodile, but a close up of it of its teeth. It's quite amazing. Anyway, so I've been watching um, YouTube clips of Steve Irwin, and Jesus he's great. <laughs> Just his ability to um, entertain and educate at the same time was quite astounding. Like in terms of being able to. You know, he comes out and he's got such a big personality mm. and for him to – you can tell that he runs that interview. Like, you know, the guests – the interviewer will be like, oh, Steve, tell us about this. And he'll just go off on his own little thing and go, yeah, look at this. Oh, crikey. Oh, it's so great. Blah, blah, blah. And then out of nowhere will bring the conversation back to conservation and the whole point of him – doing all of the stuff that he did. He was such a huge personality. I still remember as a kid watching those really early series of him. It was just him and his wife, Terry, in the mm. tinny, like going and catching crocs and moving them to different places to safety or whatever. And as a kid, I was just, oh, my God, who is this man? Yeah. And I just thought he was this crazy man and being so kind of totally pulled into his personality. But at the same time, I asked mum to watch the show about the crocodiles every week where the, he would teach us stuff about crocodile conservation and, you know, it really worked yeah. on that is level. Is this where your love of crocodiles comes from? No, no, because he's – I um, my first introduction from Stephen Irwin was from South Park. Oh, really? Yeah, never heard of him, never seen him. Never heard of Steve Irwin before South Park. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, Cartman was doing his impersonation. Wow. I was like, what is, who is this? And then, you know, eventually found out later on who he was, but it was, it was Cartman. (laughs) 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 But, uh, well, uh, where's my love? Uh, Do you know, I I don't know. I think I've always been a fan of um, things that will potentially kill you. Um, you know, because it's sharks and bulls. 
And Bulls. Yeah, I love Bulls. Yeah, I'm going to go to the Melbourne show. In, um, I'm, I'm going to go to the Melbourne show too. Do you want to go together? We yes, have to please. go on the day that the cattle and the bulls are there. Because yeah, I'm... but we have to go on all the rides as well. I don't. Okay. So much like a ride. No but anyway. Maybe you can separate. Yeah, we yeah. could separate. I'll go see the bulls though, for yeah, sure. Yeah, cool. Bulls? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. But like snakes. Prize winning and... bulls specifically. <laughs> Not just any of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't see that coming. But it's... You know, things that potentially, yeah, those prehistoric kind of... How do you of, feel about um, all of those alligator shows that are on TV at the moment? What alligator? Oh, all the swamp, swamp people. Gator and, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen them a couple of times. They're all right. But it's... I, I find them the a same. Bit, I find them a bit, uh, you know, that kind of like American over-the-top thing that's really big in the moment. You know, everything's like overblown. I felt like Steve Irwin was just the first of that, but it was all natural. It all came from yeah. this hyperactive being that was just like that. And then, It was so natural, yeah, yeah. whereas those shows just seem like a bit... trying. Yeah, and it's a bit cliche kind of thing, and they all seem the same. Yeah. It's like... Who are these crazy Southern swap? crazy man yelling about a gopher under a house? Yeah. I actually did watch that the other day. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what else yeah. did you watch then? Oh, so you're going to love this. Saturday night I stayed in and watched the, the women's football, as we said, but then yes. after that uh, I just didn't have much to do. And on Saturday nights for all the sad ladies that stay home, uh, but with, with my partner, the, uh, Sex in the City marathons, it happens every uh-huh. Saturday night. So it's awesome if you ever stay in on a Saturday night. It, they go from about 8.30 to, say, 11.30 at night. Oh, wow, they um, just keep going. Of, of the TV show? Or of the, the TV show, part? yeah, and they just go on forever and ever and ever. And it's just these marathons. And I forget, but every so often I'm home on a Saturday night, I'm like, oh, yeah, back to like, terrible Sex in the City. And my partner's like, I don't want to watch this, but then sits on the couch and watches the, the whole you know, yeah. what's he's like, oh, not more sex in the city. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> oh, no, not more sex, <laughs> not sex in the city. Oh, I'm going to walk over here. Oh, come back oh. now. Uh, and also on the other channel was uh, Bridget Jones's The Edge of Reason. So the second oh was like, this, like single girls kind of, you know, <laughs> evening in, except that I was with my partner. And uh, and so I'd flick between The Edge of Reason, Bridget Jones's The Edge of Reason, which is the second one, was not the... so good. Yeah, right. No. Yeah, the one where she goes to the Thai jail. And she... Do you remember that, Jeff? No, I remember the <laughs> first one when I... No, no. I got Second one's not so good. Although she's just a really lovely character. She's just a great it's just mm. a great character. It's quite enjoyable, even though the script's terrible and the plot's terrible, you kind of enjoy it. Uh, but I just realised how bad Sex in the City was. Every time I watch it, I go, this is appalling. Every aspect of it is terrible. Carrie but is so a horrible... But you still sit there and watch it. Yeah, but it. I love yeah. it. It's yeah. so strange. It's so addictive. I don't know if it's like a childhood thing, but I can't... I, I couldn't help but wonder if the whole show was about me. <laughs> like, it's just Carrie <laughs> interrupting people with her problems. You know, you've got Samantha walking along going, I've got breast yeah. cancer. Oh, my God, Biggs left me again talking about cancer. <laughs> He's a cancer on me. <laughs> And you're like, oh my god! Wow. Like, you know, it's just this constant, you know, coming back to how Carrie is just, and this obsession with men is is really bizarre. But I love it. Like, it's still wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Samantha is clearly, with all the retrospective time uh, and perspective of time, sorry, uh, is retrospectively the best character on Sex and the City. As a, down. as a writer, yeah. do you find yourself envious of? Um, the situation where you can yes. occasionally sit on a windowsill and bang out an article <laughs> and somehow live in Manhattan and spend all your time Mac. getting drunk and having sex. Right, yeah. in these appalling columns. <laughs> I couldn't help but wonder, do men really like hairy legs? <laughs> anyway, but that was my watching. What did you watch? <laughs> Please tell me Sex in the City Marathon. <laughs> no, but... um. Oh, well, I don't know where to go. I was nearly about to say, you know, one of the things that I have been watching a bit over the last week is um refrigerator videos. What? <laughs> Oh my I God. was thinking maybe this is a new low in my life. It's finally cracked. Death, <laughs> <laughs> come back to me. <laughs> well, because I, I had to buy a new, I had to buy all these new appliances. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. Well, so you can go to appliances online and okay. they're much cheaper than... But, oh, yes, I've been looking at appliances online. Well, like, you'll know then that they all come with a YouTube video where there's a man telling you about the virtues of this particular really? refrigerator. I did not know that. No, wow. they, they no. did. They say, yes, it's got a large storage area. It's got an ice maker and very no. sturdy. It's like they've just put a camera in front of this guy. He's like one of the Ooh. one of the salesmen in the wow. shop. So what's that? Are they making it or are you watching it? <laughs> yeah, strangely addictive. Like more... Wow. Really? You may not. No, not really. But <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, this is the thing I'm going to say to your fair, like it's kind of hard. You might need a new fridge, but it's kind of hard to get um, excited about it because, you know, one fridge is pretty much the same as another fridge. But here are these guys desperately trying to make something to say in these videos. So they open the door and they say, yes, sturdy construction, or you can wipe that down easily. Wow. But, um, I and know, then, I'm gonna that is the, the whole best. new world. <laughs> That is the best what did you watch this week uh, ever. I was going to talk a little bit. I up. think you've peaked, okay, Jeff. Yeah, I have peaked. get a lot of perks from doing this job. Uh, I think, you know, interviewing um, people like Julian Clary and Margaret Cho, you know, this week. And Julian Clary liked my shirt. He liked my shirt first. So thank you. Didn't like anything I was wearing, so (laughs) suck on that. (laughs) Uh, But it just made me, um, you know, think of other cool perks that I've had in other jobs. I I think one of the greatest perks of my other job working in... Um, like outside school hours care is during the school holidays and just going on excursions all the time. Going like going to places you wouldn't usually go otherwise. Or just being able to go to the movies and Ah. just, and I, like, you know, you get a a half an hour break and that is my time to, that is nap time. So Aren't you worried they'll escape or? No, 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 because. Maybe escape is not the right word. (laughs) Or maybe it's exactly the right word. <laughs> you know what I mean, though. No, no but this is, it, it's, that's my break time. Like, it, like fully, I'd be on a break. So there, was, there were other staff there that are... Oh, okay. So you you're know. at the movies, you get half an hour off to sleep during the film. Is that yeah. right? Where you don't have to pay attention. Yeah. Great. And then otherwise, but the kids don't, they're engaged in the movie. They'll just sit there and watch the movie. It's fine. You sit on the edge, you sit on the end of the row. So if they have to get out there, you have to, they have to climb over you uh, anyway. They so. wake you up. Yeah. I used to work for a, um, a professional association. Of, I won't say who they were, but um, I, my, my job was changing light bulbs. Literally, that was my job. No. Yeah, they had all, wow. they had all these down lights in the thing and they would blow all the time. So I have to come every week, do sort of cleaning and bits and pieces. It surprises yeah. me, given... <laughs> what are you trying to say? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I was very good at okay. it. <laughs> but anyway, the perks of that job, they would always be having like conferences because that was what they did. And so we'd come in the next day and all the plates of food would still be left. Oh. So you got to eat day-old food. <laughs> Hello. Speaking of day old food, I can I can top that. This wasn't my job, but when I was at high school, uh, one of the girls in our group worked for KFC, and so the day after her shift, she used to bring in literally a garbage bag full of popcorn chicken and feed the common room. And what? how gross is that? And she'd open up. That this- really does sound <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> They just go to her, take it home, and she'd bring in this garbage bag of, of popcorn chicken and open it up, and everyone in the common room would be like, Egh. and then they had to have a special class where they talked to us about health. 
Yes. And, and so- eating. <laughs> I actually got worried that we were all just sitting in our common room stuffing ourselves with popcorn chicken. So wow. you're saying that the school had to sit down and say, so kids um, eating day-old chicken out of a garbage <laughs> bag, not such a great not idea. Not so good, not so good. Just but- wash your hands before and afterwards, guys. <laughs> yeah, put it, put it on the plate. Uh, use a fork to get in there. I also had, I had a lot of jobs working at, say, supermarkets or service stations where there was probably some perks that were... Don't know if they're official perks, so to speak, but uh, you know, sometimes you got discounted things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> a few little, little discounts every so often. <laughs> my first job was, um, or one of my first jobs was working at the local pool and getting like a, a, a any pies and stuff that had been left in. In the warmer at the end of the day, that was a very special perk when you were 14. I love that. Nothing dangerous about that at all. There's someone on the phone. Do you think we should see if they had a perk or if they're just a random person? I love it. Mm, Who could this be? Hello, you're on Triple R. Hey, I am ringing it out first. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Um, I used to work in a perfumery and um, some of the perfume houses used to have these ridiculously amazing perfume launches. Like... There was one, I can't remember, the Sheraton or something in the ballroom with caviar and champagne and canapes. And everyone walked out with a big bottle of perfume. It was awesome. And that happened a few times. So, you know, it was really cool. But then there was, after that, I had that, and there was one at the Adelphi where, again, cocktails, you know, nibbles, all that kind of thing, and a bottle of perfume. So then Chanel had a perfume launch, and it was my day off, and I was like, nah, these are good, I've got to go. So I went into the city, really excited, thinking to Chanel, how awesome is this going to be? And it was in one of those sort of like a TAFE conference rooms. Oh, with a whiteboard. No, with a whiteboard, stale orange juice and stale pastries and instant coffee. And after like half an hour of being banged on about about this perfume, we got a tiny little tube of about four mil. No! <laughs> what a bunch of tight asses! That's hilarious! Oh my god, you may as well have just gone to Maya and got your sample. And you could have got all those perfumes. I if I bought something from Lossetar, you know what I mean? I feel like there must be huge quantities of all those perfumes that are attached to celebrities that people don't like very much anymore. You know, they all are, you Like know, J-Lo. Yeah. Smell like David Beckham. I don't think that they'd have a fancy launch, in all honesty. I don't work in Turkey anymore, but I cannot ima- imagine a J-Lo launch being much job. Mate, that is so much better than getting a free Mars bar occasionally. Thank you very much for the call. <laughs> Pleasure. See ya. See ya. What a different, what a world that I had no idea existed. existed. I was just yeah. thinking that. These perfume launches. I feel like maybe I need to get in on that. In there's the a way. Action. Yeah, well, how would I, I do reckon that? Chanel's probably got a job going. to Breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The book Switched On is published in Australia by Scribe. It's a book with the intriguing subtitle, A Memoir of Brain Change, Emotional Awakening and the Merging Science of Neurostimulation. To explain what that means, we're joined 
joined by the author, John Elder Robeson. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thanks for having me with you today. It's a great pleasure. You write in the book about growing up as someone who was very, very good with machines. And in fact, you went on to build the famous fire-breathing rocket-launching guitars that KISS used to use, but you were not so good with people. And you were later recognised that you were somewhere on the autism spectrum. When you were growing up, did you feel that there was an absence in the way you related to people? Or did you just think that was how you were? Well, I felt there was something wrong with me because uh, other kids didn't want to be friends with me. They didn't want me around or to play with me. And and what else can you conclude as a child in that circumstance except that you're defective or broken? Was getting an actual diagnosis, some having a label that you could put on the way that you felt, was that useful for you? It was tremendously valuable because it was the first time that I had a non-judgmental um, explanation for why I had struggled socially all my life. Rather than being told I was uh, stupid or retarded or lazy, I learned that I'm an autistic person and autistic people have certain difficulties reading emotional cues and and connecting successfully with other people. How old were you when you got the diagnosis? I was 40. Most people who were my age in their 50s and 60s today grew up as I did without a diagnosis unless they were essentially unable to speak. Right. Mm. This book is mostly about the consequences of a trial you underwent with a procedure known as transcranial magnetic stimulation. What is TMS and why did you decide you wanted to do it? Um, TMS is a process of uh, using electromagnetic pulses like the energy in an MRI machine to um, deliver electrical energy to small areas of the brain. The brain is basically an electrical organ. It's, uh, it's a bunch of nerve cells with wires connecting them. And psychiatric medications affect the properties of the wires, if you will. But a psychiatric medicine goes all through your brain. So it has side effects as it imbalances areas that aren't awry. Um, the possibility of brain stimulation is that they could directly target the area they thought was affected and only that area. And, and I thought that it was fascinating and I was very hopeful that it would help me to see emotional cues in other people. How does that differ from something like electroshock therapy in e- terms of... Electroshock therapy is... Uh, putting wires on either side of your head and sending a thunderbolt through your brain that's so powerful it burns out a bunch of connections and causes a massive reset. Okay. TMS is uh, much gentler. You're conscious when it happens, Mm. and it puts you into a kind of a meditative state. Um, It certainly doesn't burn out circuitry in your head. Mm. Okay, let's talk about the effects. You weren't very sure as to what exactly was going to happen, but you had quite remarkable consequences. And one of them was a change in the way that you heard music. Now, you were someone who'd spent a lot of time in the music industry, but suddenly you were listening to music in a different way. Tell us about that. Well, the difference was that I'd been very successful as an engineer in music. And for me to do a good job as an engineer... I had to deliver sound that was clear, properly equalized, it wasn't distorted, it didn't echo. I had to master the technology of delivering the music, but I never really gave any thought to the emotion or the feelings of the singers and the other performers. And suddenly, 
after one of the brain stimulation experiments, I was just overwhelmed by the emotion in the music, something that had never happened to me before. Hmm. You talked about um, previously not being able to pick up on um, emotional cues and stuff and then later you could. What Can you explain what it was like before and after? Well, autistic people are very emotional. Um, studies have shown that we feel emotions more deeply and for longer than people who aren't autistic, but we don't respond to the emotional cues of other people in the expected way a lot of the time. And that causes us really quite a lot of pain. Um, you might say something to me and, and I, I might answer you, come on, let's go, we're going to be late for our meeting. And, and you could think, well, what a, a cold, callous son of a bitch he is <laughs> because you were very worried about something. And in fact, I had no clue at all. And, and I might care for you very much, but I had no clue, and, and so your feelings were hurt, and, and it's painful for us to have those kinds of social failures, and that was what I hoped the TMS would change, and, and it did. And it did allow you to understand emotions better, but that also had some less positive consequences for you, as well as these positive ones. It changed the way you thought about some of the relationships that you had. Maybe you could explain that. Well, the, the thing that uh, I guess it was a, a foolish illusion that I'd built in my mind. I thought, once I learned about my own autism, that my problem was that I couldn't receive these positive messages from other people. I thought there must be people out there who think, oh, you're, you know, you're really sweet and I like you and I'd, I'd like to get to know you or I'm really happy about what you've done. And I thought, if only I could get those messages, I'd feel great. But it turned out, that the messages that I got when I could see these cues were worry and fear and anxiety and jealousy. And, and of course, I thought, well, what's on the front page of the newspapers every day and what kind of a fool was I to think that it would be different? Hmm. And, and it was, frankly, it was devastating. And I had been shielded by my autism all my life from those bad messages. I realized that when it happened. Did that make you regret having gone through the process to be able to feel those things or to be in their kind of pathway? I wouldn't say it made me regret it, but it, it certainly uh, pushed me to deep despair and the brink of suicide. Wow. It, it was a very, very hard uh, time for me to have, the, to have the sense of that just turned on in midlife. I mean, I'm sure that my sense of it might not have been any greater than yours, but you've had a lifetime to harden yourself to it gradually, where for me it was just like, bang, it was switched on. Mm. Well, what, what is the status of this um, procedure now? When you did it, it was simply research, but has it been approved for general use? I guess I'm a little worried that some people might be listening to this and thinking there's a cure for, for autism, I want to get that at once. But maybe we can clarify, what actually is the status of this procedure? Well, I think that we should uh, first clarify that autism is a neurological difference. It's not a disease, and as such, it, it's not something that needs a cure. Autistic people are not sick or broken versions of others. Um, we're not, we're complete in and of ourselves. We're just different. And, and we can be disabled in certain ways, like seeing emotions. I was, was very disabled by that. Um, the status is that TMS is currently 
approved to treat depression and anxiety throughout Australia. And there's quite a bit of research going on to study the use of TMS um, in autism. Uh, Dr. Peter Entecott is doing that work right here in Melbourne at uh, Monash and Deakin. And, um, and then we have um, other researchers who are studying TMS in, uh, in, in addiction, in, uh, in reducing deterioration from aging. It's being studied in schizophrenia. We've really just started to scratch the surface with what it can do. And, and I think the story in my switched on book is, is that of me, an autistic person, but it could be a metaphor for anyone with what is now an unreachable um, dysfunction in the mind. And, and we have a technology that may be able to reach in and change it tomorrow. Mm. I wonder, do we know about the possible long-term um, effects of the the process? I mean, you talk, you make the comparison with the classic science fiction story, Flowers for Algernon, where a, a young man who's um, intellectually disabled gets a treatment that improves his cognitive abilities, but it slowly wears off. And you say that the effects of this slowly wore off, but the, but you still were changed in, in some way. So do we know what happens over time? Well, the effects do wear off, and you can go back and you can be re-stimulated. People uh, who are being treated for depression now, um, they're treated uh, daily for a few weeks, and then after that, they might go back every three, six, or nine months for a maintenance dose of TMS. So that's proving to be how it, it works in depression. And um, there's also the idea that even a brief experience to something powerful can change your life forever. And, and I would compare this to um, being colorblind. Imagine that you grew to adulthood and you saw the world in black and white, but you heard about the beautiful blue sky and her lovely red shirt and the beautiful green lawn outside. And eventually you developed a kind of a maladaptive response to that where it started to make you angry because you thought, well, that's just bull. I mean, the world is, is as I see it and I believe the evidence of my eyes and there's no such thing. So imagine you go into a doctor's office and they do something to you and you come out and you see all the beauty of the world's colors. And you say, well, my God, it, it was real. It was real all along. And even if color fades away, you're going to live the rest of your life informed by the knowledge that color's real. And when somebody says, look at that yellow car out there, you're going to know what it means in a way that you never did before. And it's going to change you significantly. And that's how it is with me. The book is entitled Switched On, a memoir of brain change, emotional waking and the emerging science of neurostimulation, published in Australia by Scribe. We've been talking to the author, John Elder Robeson. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.